This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. I started rereading The Lord of the Rings books after the last Hobbit movie came out, and they remain among my favorites. If you've never experienced these cultural touchstones, and you really should, now's your chance. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 90, Fifty Shades of Wordplay. This week, our topic is the life of one of Japan's most famous authors. He lived during the Edo period and helped define that era's literary tastes in a way few would be able to match. He's one of Japan's most famous authors, but during his lifetime, his work was regarded as essentially the equivalent of the modern airport paperback novel. Ihara Saikaku was born in Osaka in 1642 to a family of merchants. Osaka was, at this point, very much a city on the rise. It was already the commercial heart of Japan, it was the largest port city in the most developed region of the country, after all, and furthermore it had been a key center of government under Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi had invested heavily in the city, and as a result it was rivaled only by Edo, modern Tokyo, in its wealth. The heart of Osaka was its thriving merchant class. The end of the Sengoku era had ushered in a new age of peace and prosperity, and the merchant class was at the forefront when it came to taking advantage of this new development. Ihara Saikaku was born into this city of prosperity. We don't know much about what his early life was like, but extrapolating from his later career, it's likely he got a very good education. If you'll remember, in Edo, Japan, the best schools tended to be hanko, the academies run by individual domains and used to educate young samurai. Osaka, however, was not part of a domain. Because of its crucial economic position, it was administered directly by the shogunate. Thus, Osaka had no hanko, which means it's likely, though not certain, that Ihara Saikaku was educated by private tutors. We know that he definitely received some private tutoring in poetry from a pair of famous poets named Matsunaga Teitoku and Nishiyama Soin. Again, we aren't sure why his parents arranged for him to study poetry, but like as not it was for the same reason that parents today force their children to learn piano, for example. Poetry was a big part of culture, and the ability to act cultured and talk intelligently about culture was helpful. It's important to note for later that both of Saikaku's teachers wrote verses intended to be light-hearted and funny, not super serious poetry. This will be important later. I should also probably mention that at this point, his name was not Ihara Saikaku. We've covered the extremely confusing tendency of pre-modern Japanese to have multiple names throughout their lifetimes before. 
In this case, Ihara Saikaku was a pen name used much later in life after he started publishing. We're not entirely sure what his birth name was, actually. The consensus guess is Hirayama Togo, based on some unrelated contemporary texts that refer to a man by that name with a biography very similar to Ihara Saikaku's. He also appears to have briefly used the name Ihara Kakue. To avoid confusion, I'm just going to engage in total anachronism and call him Ihara Saikaku for the entire episode. He was apparently a poet of some accomplishment from early on in his life, and later described himself as having studied poetry from the time he was 15. However, he seems to have spent most of the first 30-odd years of his life devoted to two things, his business and his wife. We do not know when he married, or even who he married, but as far as we can tell, Ihara Saikaku's marriage was a happy one. The marriage produced three children, one of whom, his youngest daughter, was blind. At some point during this period, he also wrote a small collection of haikai and arranged for its publication. Don't worry, I'll explain exactly what a haikai is in a little bit. Anyway, he clearly didn't expect this collection to go much of anywhere. Think of that friend of yours from college who self-published his poetry on Amazon and you'll get something close to the idea. Unlike your friend from college, however, his poems proved successful and popular at least to a limited degree. He developed a reputation as a light-hearted writer concerned with depicting the daily lives of merchants. Nothing too fancy, but respectable. However, in 1675, disaster struck. His wife died very suddenly. We're not really sure what killed her, but we know Ihara Saikaku took it very badly. Memorial poems for the dead were not uncommon, and Saikaku decided to immortalize his love for his wife, by composing an extremely long one. In the course of 12 hours, he would write 1,000 verses dedicated to his wife. I'm not sure how, but eventually these verses found their way into publication after the fact. Ihara Saikaku then left his business in the hands of relatives and underlings, and retired to go on Buddhist pilgrimage. We know that he stayed with several different monastic orders, and we know that he was apparently devoted enough to the process of pilgrimage that he didn't come back to Osaka until 1677. Still, given his later depictions of monastic life, well, let's just say I'm not entirely sure how much he enjoyed it. Probably either too much or not enough. By the way, if you'll remember, I mentioned that he had three kids with his beloved wife, he just left them in Osaka, and I can't find much reference to them in any biographies of his life after this point. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure what happened to him. When he returned home to his presumably somewhat grumpy children, however, he was in for a big surprise. Apparently the poems he had written for his wife had been published, and surprise, they were a huge hit. And thus did Ihara Saikaku begin his literary career. At first, he continued to work with poetry. Haikai no Renga, or linked verse haikai, were his preferred form. So what exactly are those? Well, Rengo poems are composed of two parts. The first is the hoku, which is composed of 17 syllables in a 575 pattern. This 575 pattern is the origin of the modern haiku, probably the most famous form of Japanese poetry. Haiku are fairly new, however. They became a popular form distinct from Renga, in the 19th century, about 200 years ago. Where things get tricky, however, is that Renga poems have a second half called a waki, 
which is composed of 14 syllables on a 7-7 pattern. The idea is to use the second half to build off of the first. Either one author writes the first half and another writes the second, or in Saikaku's case, he keeps switching roles and building off of his previous poems back and forth. Basically, it's poetic freestyling. Now, Renga as a form go all the way back to the Manyoshu, and were traditionally very aristocratic and somber in style until the advent of Haikai. Haikai translates to something like vulgar or down-to-earth. It was a late Sengoku or early Edo motif of poetry, and took what had previously been a very fancy form of poetry, Renga, and made the tone much more humorous. If you grew up in the English-speaking world, imagine something like taking the Shakespearean sonnet style and using it to write sex jokes, and you get the basic idea. So, Haikai no Renga means humorous linked verse poetry. For the first part of his career, this was Ihara Saikaku's preferred style, and he's often thought of as the last great master of the form. Why would he be the last, you say? Well, because of one of his contemporaries living in Edo, a rising star at the time, whose name is one of the few likely familiar even to those who don't know much about Japanese history, Matsuo Basho. Basho is arguably the most famous poet in Japanese history, in part that's because of the time he was born in. This part of the Edo period is the last great flowering of native Japanese culture without any large degree of Western influence. However, he was also just an incredibly talented man, and he made it his mission to take Haikai no Renga and elevate them into poems that were not only entertaining, but carried a larger emotional significance as well. The more serious Renga of the past you see, while quite beautiful, required an encyclopedic knowledge of the Japanese cultural canon to really appreciate them. Poems would refer back to older poems and riff off of each other or contain the kind of metaphorical references that would go right over the heads of most people. Basho didn't do that. He referred to simple things anyone could recognize, but still wrote poems with a strong emotional significance, and some very funny ones as well. After him, Haikai no Renga would become considerably more artistic and the less comic genre, and while I love Basho, I have to admit part of me is a little sad about that. As an aside, the Basho-Saikaku dynamic is representative to an extent of a larger cultural dynamic between Osaka and Edo slash Tokyo. Starting at this point, the two cities developed something of a rival sense of each other, Osaka being the more blue-collar, working-class merchant city, Tokyo being the white-collar city of high politics and high culture. That sense of rivalry continues to a certain extent, to this day. If you're American, a good way to think of it would be like the rivalry between Boston and New York. It's possible to view the cultural dynamic between Ihara Saikaku and Matsuo Basho in this way. Saikaku was very consciously writing consumer entertainment for the masses. Basho was writing to elevate the form, so to speak. Saikaku's personal specialty was the ability to rapidly write Renga for an audience. He'd essentially chain poems off of each other for an audience as part of a performance. He'd be doing this not locked in a study, but in front of a live audience who would listen to him spin these poems out at an incredible rate. Again, I think the best analogy for the modern day is probably freestyling. He became incredibly skilled at it, a fact best demonstrated by how quickly he could turn out the poems. So, in 1675, for the death of his wife, he wrote 1,000 poems in a day. 
1677, he broke 1600 as part of the performance. In 1680, he took a challenge from two other masters of the genre and managed 4,000 in a single day. In 1682, he was engaged to perform at a local Buddhist temple. Then, as now, temples and shrines alike sometimes hosted festivals or fairs designed to bring the local community together, and probably to land some donations as well. While there, Saikaku performed the most amazing feat of his poetry career, writing some 23,000 poems in a single day. In this case, we actually have no idea what the poems were, because supposedly he was coming up with them so fast that the scribes on hand couldn't do more than tally them. Now, depending on your personal stance, this is either a profound example of the ephemeral and temporary nature of beauty and art, or an extremely slick marketing maneuver. This is your only chance to hear these poems which will never be written down and never heard again. However, poetry was not the domain in which Ihara Saikaku would make his most lasting mark. Again, why he shifted genres is a matter of some personal interpretation. Some say it was because he enjoyed long-form composition more than short poetic styles, some that he simply spotted a niche market and decided to exploit it. Again, probably a little of column A and a little of column B. And so it was that Ihara Saikaku started writing fiction. And not just fiction, but extremely filthy and tawdry fiction. So tawdry, in fact, that the clean label on this podcast is going to make discussing the fiction a little tricky. First, though, we have to take a quick aside and talk about the nature of sexual relations during the Edo period. You see, from our modern perspective, the vast majority of Saikaku's characters are bisexual. However, the concept of heterosexuality as the default sexual identity for most people is a fairly new one. In most pre-modern societies, Japan included, a degree of bisexuality was more the norm. In Edo Japan, it was definitely the norm. For young men, a homosexual relationship worked as a sort of introduction to sex and was fairly common. Young men were often idealized as beautiful and erotic texts and imagery. Relationships between two older men would have been more unusual. I'm sure it did happen, but I've never seen it depicted in print or referred to in a text. So, with that in mind, we should talk about Ihara Saikaku's first novel, published in 1682, which told the story of a man named Yonosuke and his Tadri adventures. The name of the novel was Koshoku Ichida no Otoko, which translates to something like The Life of an Amorous Man. The name of the main character, Yonosuke, is a reference to ukiyo, or the floating world. The term ukiyo was actually originally a Buddhist one referring to the impermanent nature of things. Like something floating on a river, it would soon be gone, so it's best not to dwell on these kind of things too much. However, during the Edo period, the term was appropriated into consumer culture with a different meaning. Since nothing was permanent, it was best to seize the day and have as much fun as you possibly could, while you still could. The yo in Yonosuke is the same as the yo in Yukio, so Yonosuke could be read as something like Man of the Floating World. The story centers around Yonosuke and his sexual adventures over the course of his life. He's depicted as first discovering the pleasures of sex at the young age of seven, which would be closer to nine in the Western Reckoning. In Edo, Japan, you were one when you were born and turned two on your first New Year. He then has his first sexual encounter with another man, before going on to blow boatloads of his father's money in pleasure districts and eventually being disowned by his father at the age of 19. 
Yonosuke then took up life as a pimp for a group of male prostitutes before being re-inherited by his father, inheriting the rest of that tremendous fortune, and eventually, at the end of the book, sailing off to an island inhabited entirely by women. So all this sounds pretty crazy, but Life of an Amorous Man was not just a tawdry story. It was a tawdry story laden with jokes. You see, the structure of Life of an Amorous Man is essentially the same as the structure of Tale of Genji. For example, depicting a series of unrelated episodes over the course of a single life, most of which end with sex. Saikaku also took some shots at conventional morality. For example, Yonosuke doesn't even fake being said at his father's death. This in a Confucian society where not respecting your parents is theoretically grounds for execution. Instead, he harasses his mother until he can get his hands on the inheritance, which he then tells her he plans to spend on even more courtesans. Life of an Amorous Man sold 1,000 copies in its first run, which for the time was incredible, and which goes to show you the difference between modern and pre-modern publishing. 1,000 copies today would be pretty much disastrous for anything other than a very small press. It was so popular that a pirated version of the book was produced by another author hoping to capitalize on Saikaku's success, and to capitalize on the fact that Japan had no copyright laws at that point. The massive success of Life of an Amorous Man induced Saikaku to continue publishing, and he pumped out several more pulpy works full of sex, making light of the morals and ethics of the day. We're only going to talk about three of them for brevity's sake. The first is Koushokugoni Nonna, which was once horribly translated into English as Five Japanese Love Stories. The better translation is Five Women Who Loved Love, or Five Amorous Women. As you might guess from the title, it's the story of five women whose lives revolved around sex, both with men and with other women. Most of the tales end badly. Several of the women are eventually executed for adultery. But for all that, they're all very vibrant and interesting characters, and the feeling you get is not so much a judgment of the female characters as a ridicule of the society that makes them hide what they really want. My personal favorite is the story of Oman, a woman who falls in love with a Buddhist monk, and discovers that he loves to sleep with young boys. So with the help of one of the monk's former lovers, she dresses up as a young boy and lets him seduce her, and they then fall in love and get married, living happily ever after. And you thought your first date story was awkward. The second work by him is also the first one I ever read, Koushoku Ichidai Onna, or Life of an Amorous Woman. This story is told as a series of flashbacks narrated by an old woman telling her life story. She begins as the daughter of an aristocratic Kuge family in Kyoto, but her desire for sex ends with her being disowned. From there, she spends her life in a constant downward spiral, always trying to rise, but being unable to do so because her desire for sex keeps dragging her down. By the end, she's a broken old woman living in a hut. Yet again, the story reads less like a condemnation of female desire and more like a critique of society forcing women into pretending they don't want sex and then punishing them when they can't live up to that ideal. Also, there's yet more sex with Buddhist monks. In this case, when she tries to join a convent, the main character is hounded by monks who just want to get some action. One gets the impression that Ihara Saikaku did not think much of the Buddhist establishment, though again, we don't know for sure. For those of you who enjoy film more than books, by the way, the story was adapted in 1952 into a movie by Mizoguchi Genji called The Life of Oharu. 
I haven't seen it, but I'm told Oharu's first lover is played by Mifune Toshiro, so how bad can it be? The third story we're going to talk about is Buke Giri Monogatari, or Tales of Samurai Loyalty. Saikaku actually wrote a whole series of works about the lives of samurai. As you might imagine, they were mostly about samurai sexual practices, and especially same-sex practices, which were very common among samurai. The book, as one might guess, is about the concept of giri, variously translated as obligation or loyalty. Saikaku states in the introduction that his plan is to tell tales of giri in order to show how it is the chief virtue of the samurai. Of course, this was likely put in to dodge samurai censors, who would not have been too happy about things that openly poke fun at their social class. However, Saikaku's not being entirely complimentary about Giri. Very often he seems to be relating not that Giri is the essence of what it is to be a samurai, but that Giri is to samurai what money is to merchants. It's the way you get ahead in life. Saikaku pokes fun at Giri by telling stories of samurai who take it to extremes. So, for example, the obligation of a daimyo is to produce the best possible heir. Thus, in one of the stories, two young samurai, one the son of a daimyo, get into a duel. The heir loses, and the victory is adopted by the dead boy's father, who tells his wife something like, well, in the end, this one's clearly a lot more talented. In another story, a retired samurai who became a Buddhist monk invites a friend over for a meal at the end of the month. The friend, also a samurai, agrees, and being a samurai, he must keep his word. Thus, even in the face of horrible snows and bandits and other sufferings, he makes his way to the monk's cottage on the last day of the month for the meal. The monk, meanwhile, has forgotten about the arrangement completely and is totally unprepared when his friend shows up. As an aside, I think it's one of the great tragedies of Edo Japan that Ihara Saikaku never got a chance to meet Yamamoto Tsunetomo, the author of Hagakure. I can just see Saikaku poking fun at Tsunetomo's moralizing self-righteousness, and that would have been hilarious to watch, assuming Tsunetomo didn't kill Saikaku, which I suppose would have been a big possibility. Anyway, Ihara Saikaku died on September 6, 1693, after producing a huge body of work. He remains widely read to this day, and he's one of the most influential authors in Japanese history. His depictions of everyday life are fascinating, both for what they tell us about daily life, and because they help us remember that societies with strict morality codes aren't always as moral as they seem to be. The very fact that people in the upper class spend so much time talking about morality codes is likely proof that not very many people are following them. Saikaku is also a good reminder that classics of literature are always a bit subjective. Saikaku himself was very much writing for a commercial audience in his day, and I sometimes think he'd be surprised to find out people still read him. In the English language world, we think of classics as these horribly boring things that we suffer through in high school English, but it's important to remember that most classic writers, Chaucer, Shakespeare, the Romantic Poets, were, just like Ihara Saikaku, fundamentally businessmen in the entertainment industry with bills to pay. They wrote things people were supposed to enjoy. We don't enjoy them today, at least not as much, because we don't get the references. Once they're explained, things become fun again. If you take nothing else away from Ihara Saikaku's life and career, take that. It's possible to write things that are both meaningful and fun at the same time. That's a lesson, in my mind, more authors today could bear to remember. 
That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part one of our series on the relationship between modern Japan and China. Oh.